Jensen's question is a good one, and it's a question for all of us. Is there ever a time when you and I could kill for the right cause? Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, sexuality, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how to move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off-limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, and writers in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. Welcome to Holy Heretics. Hello, everyone. This is Gary Allen Taylor, your host here at Holy Heretics, and I want to thank you for being the most important part of what we are trying to create here in this sacred space. So far in season three, we've been talking primarily to individuals who have been marginalized by conventional Christianity. But today I want to change the narrative just a bit and talk about the reason why I began to deconstruct my faith about a decade or so ago. In short, and there's a long story here, but I'll I'll give you the brief synopsis. In short, it's because I discovered the truth of nonviolence and enemy love. And it sounds really cheesy and something that you can only either do theoretically or maybe that's just a choice only available for white privileged guys like myself. And I understand the critique toward nonviolence and pacifism, but I also believe that nonviolence is more than just passivity. And since our last conversation with Natalie Drew teased on this notion, I wanted to go a bit further in this episode and continue that conversation as it relates to what does it look like for those of us in the deconstruction community to live lives of nonviolence, to resist evangelicals nonviolently, to engage on social media nonviolently, to even deconstruct our faith in nonviolent ways. And as I record this, we are just hours away from the most recent deadly mass shooting in the United States. And no doubt before this episode is released in a couple of weeks, there will be several more mass shootings in this nation that idolizes guns, toxic masculinity, and violence. Here's some stats just to kind of prove my point. Four in 10 Americans live in a household with a gun. 44% of Republicans say they own a gun. 41% of rural adults report owning a gun. And this gun ownership and idolatry toward violence seems to be related to race, at least here in the United States. Eight out of 10 black Americans say gun violence is a big problem, while only 39% of white Americans believe this. And I know this is really a foreign concept for those of you listening from Europe or Asia or Australia or other parts of the world. But here in America, we love our guns. We love our God and we love our God-given right to blow you away. We worship the military. They are our heroes and even our superheroes in movies and TV consist of the most violent people you would ever meet in real life. John Wayne, Wade Wilson, John Wick, even our theology is violent. We believe in a violent, wrathful God that's going to send the mass of humanity to burn in hell for eternity. So violence is wrapped into the DNA of what it means to be an American. I think it's wrapped into our very founding documents. It's it's wrapped into our economy. It's wrapped into our foreign policy. It's wrapped into our entertainment. We love violence. So how do you resist this? How do you change the narrative? 
because the United States has the largest military on the planet, and 70% of our active military are professing Christians, meaning when the United States kills its enemies, it's probably a Christian who pulled the trigger. So as I said just a while ago, how do we resist this? How do we confront evil without becoming evil ourselves? And, and what do we do about the real evil that exists in the world? How do you confront things like white supremacy or economic injustice or the very real horrors of the war committed right now in Ukraine? If you're a pacifist, do you just sit back and let evil continue? As our friend Rebecca on Twitter tweeted last week, she said, my roadblock I keep coming up against with pacifism is that in practice, it results in Christians saying God loves you to people who are being tortured and killed and raped, but then just leaves them to the torture and the killing and the rape. And I would agree with her. If that's the case, then yes, pacifism is in itself a form of violence. So what I want to do today is talk about a larger conversation about nonviolent resistance. I mean, even Mahatma Gandhi said that if the only options available to us are fight or flight, then the more ethical response would be to fight. Or as Otilia de Coster said, what I fear is being in the presence of evil and doing nothing. I fear that more than death. And I agree. I agree that being in the presence of evil requires action, but what kind of, of action? And before we go further, I, I just want to be honest about the, the fact that it's really difficult to do justice to a complex conversation like nonviolent resistance or a theology of nonviolence. So in saying one thing, I can't say everything. And so I hope you will listen with a bit of grace, realizing there's just so much you can cover in one topic. And this is a conversation that my guess is takes a lifetime to really understand and unpack. So let's start with what we mean by nonviolence. The belief in nonviolence or the practice of pacifism has been relegated to the fringes of faith. It's so uncommon these days among the global Christian community that it's almost been lost completely as part and parcel of our praxis. It's either viewed, as I said earlier, as a privileged piety by the elite or as a very unpragmatic and unrealistic way of dealing with evil. So when we come to the notion of pacifism, I think the first thing we have to do is change the conversation. According to that adroit theologian, Don Draper, he said, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. And I don't really like what's being said about pacifism. I think we've gotten it all wrong. So let's change the conversation. And let's start with retiring the word pacifism altogether because it reeks of timidity and cowardice and privilege. And I want to replace that word with nonviolent resistance. So I'm going to do my best for the remainder of this episode to not use the word pacifism anymore uh, because it has negative connotations and it robs us of the power of resisting nonviolently. And second of all, we need to address two insane ideas that are just normalized in American culture. First, that war and violence are pragmatic and nonviolence is not. And second, that redemptive violence is salvific. We were told way back in World War I that it would be the war to end all wars, and yet here we are. War has become so ubiquitous here in the States that it's not only normal, it's morally justified. The Department of Defense just released their budget for the year 2023, and it's a whopping $773 billion request to continue making war. Someone recently told me, 
show me your paycheck and I'll show you your values. And what we value here in America today is war. We value violence because that's where we spend our money. We don't have enough money for education and healthcare and basic human services because we spend billions of dollars on war. And we call that pragmatic. In a 2004 analysis of military spending, CIA expert James Dunnigan and Albert Nofi showed the real cultural cost to war, the real cultural cost to this thing we call pragmatism. And I want you to remember before I share the data that it's almost 20 years old. So let's take these numbers you hear and multiply them, I don't know, by maybe 200, 300 in your imagination. In their findings, they share this. For what the world spends on defense every 2.5 hours, about 300 million, smallpox was eliminated back in the 1970s. For the price of a single new nuclear attack submarine, 1 billion bucks, we could send 7.5 million third world children to school for an entire year. For the price of a single B-1 bomber, we could provide basic immunization treatments to the roughly 575 million children in the world who lack them, saving 2.5 million lives every single year. For what the world spends on defense every 40 hours, we could provide sanitary water for every human being who currently lacks it. How do we wrap our minds around such a pragmatic choice toward mutual assured destruction? And and what is so practical about all this violence and insanity and waste anyways? The third problem we need to deal with as it relates to changing the conversation about pacifism is rejecting the myth of redemptive nonviolence. In America, we continue worshiping at the altar of violence because we believe that violence saves or at least in principle, that violence done as a response to violence will end violence and bring about justice. The belief that violence saves is so successful because it doesn't seem to be mythic in the least. It appears to be the nature of things. It's how the world works. It seems inevitable. And violence is the last and often first resort in any global conflict. And it strikes us personally as well. The myth of redemptive violence is what drove Dylan Roof to murder those sacred souls at Emanuel EMA Church in Charleston because he believed he was acting justly since he was told black people raped white women on a daily basis. It was the myth of redemptive violence that led Timothy McVeigh to bomb the federal building in Oklahoma City in retaliation for various attacks and raids carried out by federal agents. It was George Bush who waged an immoral, redemptive, violent war of shock and awe. It's Vietnam. It's the war in Afghanistan, the Persian Gulf War, or any of the thousand drone strikes done under former President Obama's administration. And I must admit that redemptive violence is incredibly appealing. I will be brutally honest here. I can remember when Donald Trump was president. And this might get me in trouble in the podcast world, but I do remember thinking, you know, what would it be like if somebody just took him out? What would it be like if somebody just assassinated him? Because in my mind, he was so vile and racist and divisive that a single assassin could have solved the problem. But now that Joe Biden's president, I like him a little bit better. I'm sure there's somebody on the other side thinking the very same thing, that if we just took him out, all of our problems would go away. 
Environmental activist Derek Jensen actually discusses this dilemma in his book, A Language Older Than Words, and he wonders aloud about the ethical issue of taking matters into your own hand. For instance, committing an act of violence for the cause of justice or for the cause of peace, like, say, assassinating Adolf Hitler or the scores of congressmen and politicians who even today look the other way as our environment is destroyed by their policies for profit. Jensen's question is a good one, and it's a question for all of us. Is there ever a time when you and I could kill for the right cause? Let me say that again. Is there ever a time that you could kill for the right cause? Let me read what his friend George wrote back to him as he posited this question of taking out people who are evil. His friend George writes, what are you going to do, Derek? You going to kill everybody you think is evil? What about Mambuto in Zaire, Hussein in Iraq, Schwarzkopf in Bush and Ronald Reagan, whose policies were every bit as genocidal as Hitler's? Are you going to kill them all? And if you do, Derek, what do we do with you? If you kill Hitler or any of these evil men, what does that make you? And Jensen responds, a killer. In his book, Jensen goes on to share this potent story about the finality of violence. Jensen writes, When I'm on the road, I usually carry a baseball bat in the back of my truck to use each time I see a snake. If the snake is sunning herself, I stop the truck and use the bat to shoo her to safety. Sometimes if the snake is especially sluggish, I loop her over the bat and carry her out of traffic. If she's already dead, I don't use the bat at all, but carry her to my truck, then take her to some quiet spot where she can lie to decompose with dignity. But most often when I stop, I have to use the bat not to save the snake, but to kill her. Too many times I've seen them live and writhing with broken backs, flattened vertebrae, and even crushed heads. Early this spring, I came across a garter snake sunning at the edge of the road. He didn't move as I approached with my bat. I nudged him with my toe, and he still didn't move. Peering more closely, I saw that his head looked strange in a way I couldn't quite put my finger on. I prodded him again, still nothing. The closer I looked, the more I thought his back must be broken. I got the bat and struck him. But I was wrong. He hadn't been injured. He was only cold. When I smashed his head, he writhed for all he was worth on the pavement. Of course, now I had no choice but to finish killing him off. I cannot now pass that spot without thinking of the mistake I made, and especially of the finality of that mistake. I can go on, and I can shoo snakes off the road in the future, but this one is dead. And I do not like the fact that my wrong decision cost this snake his life. So that's a potent read as it relates to the finality of our violence and often brings up the question, what if we were wrong? Like, what if the people we think are so evil really aren't evil at all? And is it my role to bring about justice to those who are evil? In many ways, this addiction to redemptive violence is the fault of the church, a church compromised by the pursuit of power. We've lost all the high ground to call the world to peace. As Stanley Hauerwas reminds us, when war is undertaken in the name of God, there can be no limit to the killing because so much is allegedly at stake. 
That's why human beings who believe in God commit acts in war that no animal would ever commit. Animals typically only kill to eat and reproduce, but humans fight to get into heaven. And that means they will wage an unrelenting war on one another. But it's not always been the case. For the last 1,600 years, we've been so accustomed to a violent church, we just believe it's always been that way. But church history bears witness to the Christian commitment to peace and nonviolence across time. Helping us see nonviolence is not an exception to the rule, but is at the very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. For the first 400 years of church history, the Christian community universally refused military service. In fact, the church's theology of nonviolence was so robust that prior to Constantine's conversion, Emperor Diocletian forbade Christians to serve in the Roman legions. Refusing to participate in violence was a unanimous position among the early church. Christians were never under any circumstance allowed to kill another person, not in self-defense, not as capital punishment, not in war, ever. There wasn't even a word for pacifism in the early church because to call yourself a Christ follower automatically assumed a life of nonviolence. And the early church even refused baptism to military members. And where did they pick up this fringe idea? Well, from Jesus himself. In every way, Jesus lived a life of holistic nonviolence. He refused to allow his followers to proclaim him Messiah until he redefined the title in terms of the cross and not the sword. He withdrew from the crowd, trying to take him by force and make him a coercive king. He commanded his disciples to love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. At every stage of his political career, he, he renounced violence as a means to bring about God's justice. He rebuked James and John for wanting to call down thunder. He chastised Peter for drawing his sword. And in disarming Peter, Tertullian tells us, Christ disarms us all. Even in death, Jesus was nonviolent. He refused to lift a finger in his own defense scolds those who do try to defend him with the sword, and rejects calling down legions of angels to fight a holy war against his political and religious enemies, writes theologian Richard B. Hayes. For Jesus, nonviolence wasn't just a modern appendage to the gospel. It is the very heart of Christianity. Jesus was nonviolent because, well, because God is nonviolent. Now, most of us, let's just be honest, will never fight in war. I'm too old for it, thankfully. But that doesn't absolve us from the daily temptation toward aggression to harm people in both word and deed. So at any time, you can ask yourself really a series of questions to determine the length to which your life might be causing harm through either intentional or unintentional violence. The first question is this. Is my job or how I earn a living causing suffering to the planet or to the poor? Second, do my eating habits support systems of animal cruelty? Third, am I causing any harm in my sexual activity or relations? Fourth, is there anyone in my life I am attempting to control? Fifth, are my religious beliefs or tradition leading me to impose my thoughts on others? 
sixth, I think. In what ways am I hurting myself through negative talk, addictive behaviors, or maladaptive coping mechanisms? Ugh, that's a good one. Seven, what or who am I afraid of? And is my fear driving me to act out defensively or aggressively? Eight, who is my enemy? We all have enemies. Who is my enemy and how am I treating them? Nine, am I in a position of power, either at home, work, or church? And how am I using or abusing that power? And then finally, in what ways do I benefit from the empire in which I live and my nation's military and war-making institutions? Buddhist teacher Pima Chodron writes, Not causing harm obviously includes not killing or robbing or lying to people, but it also includes not being aggressive not being aggressive with our actions, our speech, or our minds. Learning not to cause harm to ourselves or others is a basic Buddhist teaching on the healing power of non-aggression. Not harming ourselves or others in the beginning, not harming ourselves or others in the middle, and not harming ourselves or others in the end is the basis of enlightened society. One of the first things I think all of us can do is simply become aware of all the ways and means in which we cause harm and suffering in the world, as well as, on the flip side, all the ways that our privilege and our pacifism continues to allow harm to perpetuate. So what we're going to see through this subversive thread of nonviolent resistance within Christianity is it's woven completely throughout Christian history. In the works of Origen, Justin Martyr, Cyprian, Pelagius, St. Benedict, Francis of Assisi, Erasmus, Bartolome de las Casas, Frederick Douglass, Alexander Campbell, Leo Tolstoy, Clarence Darrow, Evelyn Underhill, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King, Thomas Merton, Daniel Berrigan, and a host of modern writers and scholars discussing the third way of nonviolent resistance. And we all know that our sacred texts contain this prophetic vision toward nonviolence, telling us again that God desires nonviolence. In Isaiah, we read, the wolf shall lie with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the fox. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain." For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Micah we read, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall harm them or make them afraid. All right. Wonderful platitudes. I think they're true. But what do you do about evil? What if being passive and simply letting evil continue is just as bad? Well, as I've said a couple of times now, Jesus provides a third way beyond quietism and beyond redemptive violence, but it comes with a price. Now, we all know that pacifists always bear the burden of proof for this ideology because as nice as nonviolence seems, most of us just assume it ain't going to work. And contrary to what we assume, pacifism is not meekness in the face of evil. It's the courageous and often creative task of disarmament. Nonviolent resistance is a way to fight against injustice and war without using violence. 
It's using the force of love and truth, seeking to change the human heart and life that resists injustice while refusing to cooperate with violence and systems of death. And I think that refusal to cooperate is something huge as it relates to what nonviolence resistance looks like in real life. It also says that the means are the ends. It means that we cannot attain good ends by unrighteous means. It means the way to peace is peace itself. Gustavo Gutierrez reminds us, love of enemies does not necessarily ease tensions. Rather, it challenges the whole system and becomes a subversive formula for true personal and national liberation. So let's be honest, we shouldn't be surprised that peacemakers like BLM, like Dr. Martin Luther King, like Nelson Mandela, and even Mahatma Gandhi appear as anything but peaceful. Everywhere they went, they stirred up good trouble through nonviolent resistance. As Dr. King said, I am committed to nonviolence absolutely. I'm just not going to kill anybody, whether it's here or in Vietnam. I plan to stand by nonviolence because I have found it to be a philosophy of life that relegates not only my dealings in the struggle for racial justice, but also my dealings with people and with my own self. So how do you do it? How do you transcend this fight or flight mentality that either engages in redemptive violence or sits passively by while evil continues? Let's find the third way. In Matthew 5, Jesus gives us a hint of what it looks like to transcend this normal fight or flight mentality as it relates to violence. He says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. We'll come back to that. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile... Go also the second mile. Now, this little teaching has been used and abused by oppressors to keep the marginalized in line. But theologian Walter Wink offers an interpretation that turns this little passive aggressive teaching on its head while also providing us a roadmap for dealing with and resisting evil. Wink shares this. When the court translators working in the hire of King James chose to translate anti-steni as resist not evil, they were doing something more than rendering Greek into English. They were translating nonviolent resistance into docility. But Jesus did not tell his oppressed hearers not to resist evil. His entire ministry is utterly at odds with such a preposterous idea the Greek word used here is made up of two parts, anti for against and histemi, a verb that in its noun form stasis means violent rebellion or armed rebellion. Thus, a proper translation instead of don't resist evil should actually be don't strike back at evil in kind or do not retaliate against violence with violence. Don't react violently to one who is evil. Resist them absolutely, but do not react violently to them. And Jesus clarifies his meaning by the three examples he gives. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Well, why the right cheek and why am I just passively submitting to another punch in the face? Wink asks an even better question. How does one strike another blow on the right cheek anyway? 
because a blow by the right fist in a right-handed world would land on the left cheek of the opponent. To strike the right cheek with the fist would require using the left hand. But in that society, the left hand was only used for unclean tasks. And so in this case, the only way to strike the right cheek with the right hand would be with the back of the right hand. It's a backhand slap, not a punch. And that's the clincher in this interpretation. What we are dealing with here is unmistakably an insult. It's not a fist fight. The intention of the slapper isn't to injure, it is to humiliate, to put someone in their place. And here's why. In the ancient world, you would not backhand a peer. A backhand slap to the right cheek would be relegated to the inferior people, to masters backhanding their slaves, husbands backhanding their wives. And it shows an unequal relation where retaliation would really mean suicide by the victim. So why then does Jesus counsel those already slapped, already backhanded to turn the other cheek? Because in turning the other cheek, this action robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate. Let me repeat that. The act of forcing someone to punch you instead of backhand you is saying, in effect, try it again. Because your attempt to humiliate me failed, and if you really want to cause me harm in front of everyone, treat me as an equal first. It is a very subversive way of telling your oppressor that you and he are on equal footing, and it changes the conversation. The second example Jesus gives is set in a court of law. Someone is being sued for his outer garment. And the Old Testament gives us a little bit of context here. And I know this is really deep, but I really think this is important. So I'm going to go into detail on each of these three examples. In the Old Testament, we read, When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to fetch his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge when the sun goes down you shall restore to him the pledge that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. You shall not take a widow's garment in pledge. Okay, so here's the point. Only the poorest of the poor would have nothing to give as collateral for a loan but an outer garment. And Jewish law strictly required its return every evening if given, since it was the only thing they had to sleep in. But in this case, in this example by Jesus, the poor debtor has sunk even deeper into poverty, and his debt can never be repaid. And his creditor has hauled him to court now to try and seize his garment by legal means. Now, indebtedness was the most serious social injustice in first century Palestine. In this context, Jesus's listeners are the poor, and they no doubt share a palpable hatred for the individuals and the systems that subject them to the humiliation of stripping them of their land and their goods, and finally, in this case, their last possession, their outer garment. Why in any world would Jesus counsel them then to give up their inner garment as well? It makes no sense. Well, Wink goes on. In giving up not only their outer but their inner garment, this would mean stripping naked in public. Now, imagine the scene. There stands the creditor with your outer garment in one hand and your underwear in the other. But here's the deal. You've turned the tables on him by your boldness since nakedness 
was taboo in Judaism. But shame did not fall on the naked party, but on the one who caused or viewed the nakedness. Suddenly, your nakedness has flipped the script. By stripping completely naked and giving him the clothes on your very back, you are not only exposing the exploitation of the system, but you are shaming the person that made you naked in the first place. The final example is one about going the second mile, and it's a bit easier to explain, and it comes from the practice of impressment by the amount of forced labor a Roman soldier could require from their subjects. Mile markers were regularly placed on the roads in ancient Palestine, and a soldier could impress a civilian to carry his pack for only one mile. To force the civilian to go further carried severe penalties for the soldier because the Romans were smart. They wanted to control you, but they did not want to incite you. And if they forced you to do unruly tasks, that would be the spark sometimes for rebellion. So they never wanted to incite their subjects to revolt. Therefore, they had a law, you can only make people walk one mile. Nevertheless, the conscription to help a Roman conquering soldier and take time out of your day to walk the two miles one way out and one way back would have been not only insulting and costly to the worker because they wouldn't have been paid. So Jesus isn't asking his listeners to befriend the soldier. So why in the world would you go a second mile for them? Well, the question is how the oppressed person can regain dignity within a system hell-bent on dehumanization. Now, the rules set in place here in this little negotiation are Caesar's rules. Go one mile, and that's all. But how do you respond to Caesar in God's way? Imagine the soldier's surprise and fear when at the next mile marker, instead of dropping the pack in disgust, you just kept on walking. The soldier might reach for his pack from you in disdain and be like, whoa, whoa, no, I'm good. Like, do not go any further. But you're like, no, I can do this. I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to walk a second mile for you. Now, normally the soldier would have had to coerce you into doing this, but now you're doing it freely. And in so doing, you have now put the soldier in jeopardy of getting in trouble for inciting a riot. In this way of continuing to walk, to continue in your own dignity, to force the soldier to react to you, to take control of the situation, you've gained back the power of choice. You offer him the power of kindness in a world of force, and you uplift yourself from a position of servile impressment to one of power and control. Now we can almost guarantee a soldier begging you to give his pack back for fear of punishment from his superiors. Now, these three examples offer what I think is the third way beyond flight or flight by first seizing the initiative in the battle, reversing power dynamics, asserting your own humanity, breaking the cycle of humiliation and shame, exposing the injustice of the system, taking control in the power dynamic, shaming the oppressor in public, standing your ground, forcing the powers that be to make decisions they weren't ready to make, and being willing to suffer rather than to retaliate. 
And all of this are ways in which nonviolent resistance works. It's ways in which nonviolent resistance begins to change not only what is happening, but it changes all the systems and structures around it. So I think it's time to retire pacifism and take on the active fight of nonviolent resistance. Remember Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. He did not act passively. He acted out of nonviolent resistance for her cause. With stones in hand and a terrified woman at their feet, Jesus interrupts the plans of the religious elite by interceding on the woman's behalf. He physically steps between the woman and her accusers and bears the brunt of their aggression, again, on her behalf. He meets their lethal force with an altogether form of power, a power manifested in suffering love on behalf of the oppressed. And this is Christ's third way. This is the third way of Jesus. It's a way of engaging evil that isn't some kind of negative form of passivity, but it is active love and truth in the face of injustice. And we have all kinds of tactics and strategies to engage in nonviolent resistance in the modern world. Protests, boycotts, sit-ins, and civil disobedience. Nonviolent resistance has been shown empirically to be twice as effective as armed struggle in achieving major goals. It is a method of struggle in which unarmed people confront an adversary by using collective imagination, courage, and action. But I'll be honest here, like kind of the fly in the ointment and one of the most nauseating things I see by people like myself, by people who are either theologically or political centrists, which I am not, by the way, is their failure to pick a side. It's a failure or a cowardly action that continues to allow them to just ride the middle ground between oppressor and oppressed without siding with the victims. I hate that. It drives me insane, and I see it every day. I saw it this past week on Twitter with Beth Moore, who seems like a decent human being who is still learning and processing and trying to grow, but she was almost patting herself on the back by just how moderate she was. And I think these Christian centrists are part of the problem because they make their living off this fairy tale idea that one can be moderate in the face of oppressive society. But there is nothing moderate about nonviolent resistance. It picks a damn side, and it enters the fray between the perp and the victim by potentially taking on suffering. So if you hear anything else in this conversation, I'm starting to get worked up here. Please know that I'm not calling you to moderation. I'm not calling you to centrism. I'm calling all of us to take up nonviolent action to do something in the world, to bring about justice, to confront evil, to pick a side, to side with those who are being oppressed, to defend the weak and the orphan, to defend the LGBT brother and sister, to defend our black and brown brothers and sisters, but to do so in a way that doesn't cause more harm. In a recent article by Erica Chenoweth, she writes, Contrary to conventional wisdom, no social, economic, or political structures have systematically prevented nonviolent campaigns from emerging or succeeding. And her research goes on to show the significant, pragmatic, dare we say, results of nonviolent resistance. From strikes and protests to sit-ins and boycotts, civil resistance remains the best strategy 
for social and political change in the face of oppression. Movements that opt for violence often unleash terrible destruction and bloodshed in both the short and long term, usually without realizing the goals they set out to achieve. And this notion of nonviolence seems counterintuitive, especially for those of us in the United States where violence is often regarded as realistic. But as the author notes, there's good reason for the success of nonviolent movements. It's because they're more likely than armed struggle to attract a larger, more diverse, and more sustainable base to resist evil. So as we come to a close in this critical conversation, what I hope you'll do is take some time this week to ponder what a life of nonviolent resistance might look like for you. Wherever you live, whoever you are, whatever your race, gender, sexuality, what would it look like for you to be nonviolent in your daily life? What would it look like to resist the evil evangelicals on Twitter nonviolently? What would it look like to resist the Theobro nonviolently? Gosh, how do you deconstruct your faith nonviolently? How do you stand up to oppressive evangelical pastors and friends and family members who are confronting you in violent ways about your deconstruction journey? I don't have all the answers for this. I hope this is the beginning of a lifelong conversation that you have with yourself, with others, as it relates to what it means to live at peace in this world as much as possible. Peace with yourself, peace with the earth, peace with your friends, peace with your enemies, peace with everyone. How do you do that? How do you live out a life of nonviolence in such a violent and cruel world? Thanks for joining me for this critical conversation. Next week, we will be joined once again by post-liberationist scholar Dr. Miguel de la Torre to discuss the rise of American apartheid. You're not going to want to miss it. We'll see you soon. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you need more resources to guide your spiritual journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, resources, and our free ebook on faith deconstruction. And before we go, will you consider joining us on Patreon? Your partnership allows us to continue creating this sacred space for seekers like you. By becoming a patron, you gain early access to each podcast episode, as well as premium content, and an exclusive invitation to join our monthly online community. Simply sign up at patreon.com slash holyheretics. See you next time.